You know, it, it must be incredibly frustrating to listen to a person that's trying to sound self-actualized about their shortcomings, also simultaneously commit the very crimes they say they regret and have since changed. I, I, I truly, like, I really mean well when I start these podcasts, and I really want to make them concise, and I, I, I want to do them quickly, but then I, they get so long, and I could not imagine you guys could have physically listened to, like, two plus full hours of part two. So this, my friends, is the Be There in Five podcast. I am Kate, and this is how I built this part two be. This is a, a whole other st- arc of the story. And actually, this isn't even the last part of the story. The final part will be about Twinkle Twinkle, social media star, which by now you know about. And I, I've mentioned before that I really, what I feel is flawed about how I built this story is an entrepreneurial stories is that years and years of of difficulty, confusion, bad decisions, uh, compiling events that in isolation are meaningless, but with retrospect, with aggregation, they all lead up to something greater. It's it's so hard to tell a story and to not say the highlight reel and to not gloss, gloss over a lot of the difficulty. And I know that it may appear I'm kind of getting in the weeds, especially with this part. I'm kind of getting into the emotional, spiritual, creative weeds of like how I reframe my thinking, how I get unblocked creatively, how I get out of a depressive phase, how I kind of got back the confidence to think that I could write a book and not have representation and not need to be a professional writer in any capacity. But I want to share this part of it because even though it's confusing and it's less of a blueprint for how somebody else can do it, since I think all of this is very individualized. I just wanted to serve as an example of like, nothing's ever that straightforward. Nothing's ever that simple. It is a long evolution and a lot of mental discipline of trying to get yourself out of a bad place and of forcing yourself to just do a lot of things and by sheer probability have one of those things pan out and kind of get you on the other side. And I appreciate you listening and being receptive to some of the harder parts of the story. I appreciate you understanding that even if it um, f- seems like a frustrating thing to follow in terms of using it as a proxy for your own business or life, I appreciate you respecting that I am telling the truth and I am telling you my experience. And people's, experience, people's experiences might not always align with what you want to hear or what would be more the most helpful to hear. But um, I, I just really never taught. I feel like even a lot of my family members in this episode, it will be like surprised to hear what I'm saying. I haven't talked a lot about um, the, the downswing. And, you know, while this might not be like everybody else's story, it is mine. And if anything, I hope it makes people who are feeling stuck, having professional difficulty, having personal difficulty, whatever it may be, feel less alone. And no matter how it seems on social media or how one portrays it, there's always something more going on and we all go through the same things. And I hope to serve as an example of of how you can chip away at it and find your way out, even though it takes a long time to forgive yourself for getting that far in. So I guess to kind of recap what I had done with Be There in Five up to this point, I had started Handmade, I had done it all myself with my mom we sold a ton it kept going we hired on people we got a small office that was like the apex of be there in five 
was really ramping up and strengthening the hand-painted business. I then, to be able to sell more and sell quickly and cut down on how many people I had to have working there at all times, I spent forever sourcing and finding a printed solution. We finally find it after so much trial and error and difficulty and doors shut in our face. Um, We find it and it doesn't do as well on Etsy and on my website as I thought it would. People still like the style of the other one. So then I had a lot of inventory. So then I decided it would be a great idea to go in wholesale, which required me to get more inventory based on what the customers want. I thought the customer was always right. I bent over backwards trying to accommodate major retailers that pursued me, all of the boutiques, all of the drop shipping websites. I went. I was in this phase where I thought I was really going to grow and become this big rug empire while simultaneously, I think not realizing I was self-sabotaging by not putting more money into it, by not hiring people, by not taking out a loan or getting a grant of some kind in order to be able to have an influx of capital. I really thought it's like I was pretending I was making the right decisions when really I think I knew in my gut that I liked the place where Be There in Five was much better than the place it was going. And I'm just not a person that can fake it until I make it. I'm not a person that can't be all in in what I'm doing. And I was so all in with Be There in Five, the brand, but not all in with Be There in Five, the doormat brand. And once I had all this inventory and I needed a bigger space... And we ramped up like halfway and got on these websites, got in some stores, even though we backed out of a big purchase order kind of at the last minute. And I still, even in the smaller scale I decided to to do, I didn't like it. I couldn't sustain it. I couldn't get my costs down without going to China and everything I've had produced overseas has not been good. And you have to incur so much like... The, the you just have to swallow errors and quality issues. And I also was like, wasn't comfortable. I, I don't know. I wasn't, I just, I wanted to keep it domestic. And I know a lot of, you know, Mr. Wonderful would say that's ridiculous. But um, anyway, I decide that I don't want to be in these big retailers. I want to stick with a small wholesale boutique business. I especially feel that way after the trade show. I learned from my trade show that I need to sell my own SKUs and designs because the ones other people were designing weren't selling and they were misattributing that to my business when really they just weren't picking stuff that people wanted to buy. Um, So around the time of my wedding, I was still had a large hand-painted operation and I still was doing just the boutiques wholesale, but I even scaled back hand-painted a bit so the business could run without me and I could just send people pre-made rugs from Italy Right after my wedding, the my last remaining contractor, who was like the biggest help and who did like everything, left because she graduated from school. When she left, <laughs> this is so funny. The day she left is the day I got tugboat. Uh, that's a story for a different day. But it, it, you you can do the math of or you know the armchair psych evaluation of a person feeling like they were no longer needed by the thing that they cared so deeply about and then the person gets a dog and then that dog is horribly behaved and the husband doesn't want a dog and then they endure six months of pretty touch and go uh situations with that dog but it was so adorable we rode out the storm and now we couldn't be happier with our perfect adorable firstborn i he he is he is a true light in my life And he is having him was so important during this time, even though in real time it made it seem harder. The alternative would have been worse. The alternative would have been me staring into space, crying, nagging my husband, 
desperately looking for someone or something to pay attention to me when he had just started a new job and was so busy. And I, I really needed something else to focus on um, to, to take me away from myself for a minute. And well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, I was I was recapping where we've gone the past two episodes. And then the last episode I left off right around our wedding, which was May of 2017. This is an important part of it, not because I'm like, oh, I miss being a bride. I miss my wedding. The party aspect it is it's so much more than that. Basically, so I had spent about a month in Europe for my wedding and honeymoon. And before you say I've gotten like rude DMs about this. People are so funny. Before you're like, you complain about money and talk about how hard it is to make money as a small business. Like, why did you have an extravagant wedding? And um, to that, I say a couple things. One. I worked really hard to make it affordable and I earned it. So I don't really have to explain it, but I would think those things. I hate when people are like, I'm broke. Look at my Chanel bags. Um, but <laughs> what I'm telling you is, is that uh, that wedding isn't the equivalent of, of the broke person having a Chanel bag, because in, in Italy, weddings are a lot more affordable than you think. It, when we crunched the numbers, it was cheaper than Chicago uh, once you got there. But the biggest thing is a lot of places don't have venue fees. And that, you know, 10 plus grand you're paying, that's just a sunk cost that doesn't even go toward anything, can fly you, your parents, your spouse, and your siblings out in economy plus. Um, and uh, there was no insane markup on a, a thing just because you put wedding in front of it. Like, it, there are these amazing old villas that just don't operate as, like, Grand Hyatts. They just are family-run old businesses that care about hospitality and that do an incredible job and that produce high quality food and experiences just because that's what is valued. And I just, everything, Europe's my happy place. Italy's my happy place. Like that is where I can relax. Some people have a beach. I have a, a back cobblestone alley that's twinkle lit with an unstable red and white checkered dinner table eating a full pizza at a meal with a giant carafe of wine and in great company. That is my beach. Going on copious amounts of wine tastings and hearing the stories of the families that have made wine for centuries and them explaining me the difference between oak aging and steel aging and grapes and harvest and terroir, whoever, who the hell knows that I'll never remember but pretend to at the time. That is my paradise, my oasis. <laughs> and this may seem off topic. I swear, I swear it's not for a couple reasons. Well, one is I always want to assure people, I want to encourage people to consider a destination wedding, specifically a European wedding. I mean, I think a lot of people write it off in their minds, assuming the extravagance, but it's not always the case. And weddings are very different in the U.S. I think they're probably similar in a lot of like tropical Caribbean places that are kind of wedding machines. But c consider a place you and your fiance have, have been before that meant a lot to you, that was special to you and, and having a shared experience with your loved ones other than a party. If you can, if people can get themselves there, and it's a simple transportation situation. You can all be in one place and do fun things together. And it's a small group and you can just spend time with everyone. I assure you, it's so glorious. And I just want to always, you know, spread that message because I think sometimes weddings can be a lot on people when it's like in your hometown and like everybody, you're, you and your parents ever knew assumes they'll be invited and there's crazy drama. And like, there's just something beautiful, self-selecting and oddly simplified um, about a destination wedding, even though you would think it would be the opposite. It breaks everybody away from their schedules, from their agendas. Everybody is almost forced to relax and be more present. 
and you're in a small curated group of people who care enough to go. And in doing that, it's all people that are very interested in meeting and talking to each other. Like it, it rules out the stragglers, rules out the random dates. Nobody's going to take their boyfriend of two weeks to Europe. Um, so I, I, I couldn't speak more highly of it. Anyway, like truly think about, think about the, the opportunity cost of that venue fee. Like, it's insane to pay. I can't believe places charge like 10, 12, $13,000, like just to book the place. And it includes nothing. And you have to bring in all the event. I mean, like, that's insane. A party should not be that hard. A celebration, a joyful event. It should not, it should never be that hard. Once you get there, all you care about is like, who's there and a nice vibe. And all you need for a nice vibe is good food, lots of drinks, twinkle lights, a neutral floral centerpiece, maybe some gold accents and a band that doesn't just play Stevie Wonder Superstitious and ABC One, Two, Three. If I hear those songs one more time, I will set the dance floor on fire. I'm just kidding. I have a very epic do not playlist, and it's truly every song you ever hear at a wedding. If anybody wants it, I will send it. Um, I actually had a DJ. I, I have thoughts on bands being far too overpriced for the value they bring to the occasion. At a certain, you know, a glass four of wine, you just want to get down to yeah by Usher. At a point, you're not marveling at the vibrato of Hermico County's finest, you know, bluesy folk singer. You're like, can I hear Lil John and point to the window, point to the wall? Like, that's all, that's what people want. And I know that's not for like, you know, maybe parents, parents, friends that don't like that music. That's why you change it up. Uh, parents like Uptown Funk. I I'll do a lot of 80s. I just won't go 70s. I won't go disco. Um, I will do Earth, Wind and Fire. But not a lot of others. I am getting so off topic. I think I miss talking about pop culture. Um, and I'm just like trying to like lighten the mood because I'm having trouble <laughs> telling this story. <laughs> so anywho, I, my wedding's a part of this because my wedding was truly, and I know everyone says this, it was a transcendentally happy, glorious, resetting, cleansing important experience where I had been in this insular world of business ownership. I forwent a lot of my social life because I always was so busy. I was working all the time. It was just like, it was this leading up to that. It was this intense period of my life. Unlike any other I had experienced where I almost forgot a lot of like who I was and what I was doing. And even though I say through owning my business, I met myself because I met a strength and a motivation and a work ethic and a, a, a level of intellect that I didn't actually think I had until I was pushed. But I also lost a lot of what I was. And I think that when I, at my wedding, I, everyone says it, but until you're surrounded by everyone you've ever loved and cared about until when people fly thousands of miles and to come see you get married, despite you, I, I had no bridal party. I put no pressure on people. Like I thought nobody would come and I had to be okay with that. I, 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 I just, I was so happy and so present and it was like a part of me I hadn't like revisited in a while. I mean, you're like, why is this relevant? You, there is a period of like depression post-wedding that I was not ready for, that I did not understand, that I would have made fun of anybody who had it because it's just not important in the grand scheme of life. And it has nothing to do with the party. It has nothing to do with the decorations. It has nothing to do with the like bridezilla things that come to your head. Like it's not about the, the superficial function. It's about two things. A, having that unique set of people in one place that you never get to see as an adult if you've moved away. And that will never probably uniquely be in that same room again, because even at different family functions, it won't be the same mix of you and your spouse's friends. And 
your families and B, um, especially in my case where I had, we, we, me and my parents, I had to work pretty hard to make it smooth and successful and affordable. And it just, it was a ton of work. And it was this part of my brain that I all of a sudden wasn't using anymore. And I almost didn't even know how much of my energy I had dumped into that. And I was engaged for like a year and a half. Um, so I had been doing this for like half of be there in five's entire existence. And I know that sounds crazy and you shouldn't let wedding planning like take over your career. But I think for me, it became kind of an outlet when I was, you know, facing somewhat of an uncertain time. And I, as I mentioned, I had so much trouble with the concept of home and I, I'd never intended to live in Chicago this long. And I feel like I have always struggled with having close friends nearby. I've always, I struggle with making friends. I've always struggled with my location, not being near the people I love the most. They just aren't always around. And I think that like, I just hadn't been around the people that made me feel like me in a while. And so my post-wedding like depression was like so bad. It was so bad. I got home and be there and five didn't need me. My wedding didn't need me. I had gotten my business to a place where it was merely just surviving and it wasn't growing because I didn't have time to let it grow for the past six months. So my wedding was like a, a, par- a small part of it, but it, it just, it's really like contributed to like a culmination of a lot of different emotions having to do with where my business was, my life, my career, and having just come off of uh, such a high and not no longer doing like a big job I had had for a, a really long time in kind of coordinating it. And I know I keep saying my wedding, and obviously it's our wedding. Uh, Greg is a big part of it, of course. 50%, I'd say. Um, and love him to death. And he, uh, he he's a big reason of why it was so great. But I'm the one sitting here, so I'm saying mine. I kind of hate the whole, like, we're pregnant, our this, our that thing. I, I, I Like, we get it. You're a team. But you're the one talking to me, so, like, use possessive pronouns accordingly. I also don't really know why, like... I don't, whenever people tell me they're trying to get pregnant, I'm like, you realize what you're saying, right? I mean, can we get the bread basket first? I'm not ready for this. I'm picturing it. I don't need to know that. But congrats, I guess. Uh, Cheers to the loving you're getting. Uh, Does this mean you can't drink with me anymore? Because honestly, that really bumps me out. I just never know really how to react, you know? (laughs) But anyways, uh, uh, jubilant interjection again, because I'm, you know, about to get into it. I, I guess at this time, it was, yeah, just a culmination of nothing really needing me, had neglected my business, but also was felt paralyzed about how to make it move forward when I had already kind of disengaged and my whole income was reliant on it. And I, I obviously weddings are really expensive too. And like, I, I don't know, I just, I went through this period where I was like, just staring at the wall feeling so stuck, feeling stuck in my role, feeling stuck in Chicago. And I say that not because I'm so happy living here with my husband. And especially when things are better, I like, it's like I over associate my interior state of being with my location when they really are two disparate functions. Um, Because I want to be where my husband is and my dog is. And I Chicago has been a great home for us, but I think a lot of you can probably relate to when you when you meet somebody special or or end up marrying somebody who isn't from anywhere near your hometown when you're, you know, their job or your job isn't necessarily where you thought you'd end up. And you factor in distance with your personal relationships and like 
you're happy and in love and you want to be with your partner, but there's just a part of you that really longs for and laments the loss of proximity to the, to the people that matter to you and you've known your whole life. I, I think like that's something a lot of us go through and you feel weird because you're like, I'm so excited to be married. I'm so excited to be here with you. But like, I, it is hard to adjust to life without, um, separate forms of in-person support readily available. I, I think, I think that you need romantic love. You need familial love. You need platonic friend love and all of those different forms of, of love and support uh, speak to you and comfort you in different unique languages that the other can't replicate. And I am a person who is horrendous at the phone, really struggles to maintain consistent communication. And I don't mean that to, to write that off as like some cute discourse, like some personality flaw I have, but like, it is harder for me to connect with people remotely. I really am a person that needs to see people. And, um, you know, I've gotten better at that over time. But anyways, at this point, it was just like I was having I was having trouble getting out of bed. I, I just was I, I I was so stuck. And I, I at this point, I was applying to corporate jobs again. I applied to my old company who like basically told me I could like come back anytime if I wanted to in some way, shape or form. But like a year and a half had passed and like. I'm not getting responses. They're like, oh, we found, you know, somebody else for the role. I apply to other corporate jobs, never hear a thing. I apply to startups, never hear a thing. So then, because uh, I was thinking, I didn't actually want a, a new job. I wanted a salary. I wanted to, like, make some money after spending a lot on my wedding. I wanted to feel like I was contributing to my family. But I kind of did it in vain to be like, I have so much experience. Like, the past two years, I've I learned more than high school, college, and my corporate job combined just by starting my own thing. Like I have, I have so much value to bring to an organization beyond like the, you know, tactical skills or education. It's more like I have the grit and I have the resourcefulness. Like I'll figure anything out is what I was selling, but no one gives a shit. (laughs) Like all they want is for you to have some like random software uh, certification on your resume. They want you to be a certified project manager. Like I'm, I'm, I was even a black belt and nobody cared. Like I, not, not karate again. That's a business process improvement term. Um, anyway, it, that was probably the worst thing I could have done a, because I didn't really like even want the jobs, but B, because I then realized even if I wanted them, I couldn't get them. And I like could not believe that people weren't seeing like the value in my experience. And I, I, I don't know. I was just, I was absolutely miserable. I was like, I cannot believe I wasted the past two years. I cannot believe I left my job and my salary. I cannot believe nobody thinks what I've done is valuable. Here I am running this thing thinking that like I'm set for life. I can, you know, climb any mountain when really it's like, oh, cute. You started a rug business. Are you knitting in your living room? That's really sweet. Like, that's how I felt like people were treating me. And I like, I just, I was like, I knew I was more, but I didn't know how to express that, to articulate that, how to prove that to people. And meanwhile, the second you start to try to prove something to other people, what you need to be doing is proving it to yourself. You control your own narrative. You control how people see your situation. And at this point, I was just kind of like closing off and isolating myself from people because 
I, I kind of felt like everybody was like, so what's next? Like, oh, so exciting. Your life is an entrepreneur. Da, da, da. And meanwhile, I'm like crumbling. And I'm like, this is horrible. And I'm so embarrassed that like nobody else wants me to work for them. And I'm just so embarrassed that like, I, I, I don't know, like, wh- wh- why did I think that this Etsy shop was my career? And I just, it's so weird how depending on your mental state, how your self-esteem and your yardstick of what makes you successful or worthy just completely turns on its side, depending on your mental health. Like nothing, nothing had changed. Nothing like really had changed except the way I started to look at it, except the guilt I felt about stepping away from it and disengaging the first half of the year to move and to get married and stuff, except for the fact that acknowledging like I had actively probably chose to step back from a lot of the wholesale and the engagements for a good reason, because I knew what I wanted. I wasn't acknowledging that what I had been doing was deliberate and purposeful and necessary. I just saw it as this big ball of like uh, failure and guilt and all the things I had done wrong. And it just really, I don't know, it was a paralyzing feeling. And I, I don't know the better, the a better way to describe it. Like when you wake up and you kind of see nothing and you feel nothing, and everything you do moves nothing. And you kind of start to realize how true it is that success doesn't equal happiness. Progress equals happiness. The, it didn't matter anything I had done before or how it objectively looked to other people. All that mattered to me was feeling like I was growing and moving and working toward something, even if I didn't know what the end product was. And I'm usually pretty good at that. But I don't know. This was just a period where I was, wasn't able to see past the cloud. And I t- I've talked about this on my Patreon before and reading some of my journal entries. But and while I don't like the, you know, the making of very negative emotions somehow charming by commenting on how they bring out the best art, I don't think that the most creative people are like disturbed people. Um, but I... I read something once on a website called Post Secret back in like 2011. I don't know if that site's still around, but people would mail in secrets. And somebody said, I feel the most alive when my heart is breaking. And that's something for me that is weirdly true and not alive in a sense of like, you know, living my best life. But in terms of the access to a, to the depths of my emotion that I'm usually not tapping into when everything's fine or when I'm coasting or when I'm too busy to think through it. And what's so great about the low points in life is if you have the ability to go there, to to acknowledge how bad you feel, to accept it and to channel it elsewhere, it's an incredibly powerful tool, not only for creativity, but for moving forward fearlessly because you have nothing to lose. And I think that I've heard before, like some, this is in relation to grief, but I think it kind of can relate to any sort of negative emotion in that it's like a tidal wave in terms of the intensity. And, and if you resist it, you'll get washed up in it and you'll drown. But if you, if you lean into it, if you go with it, if you ride the wave out, eventually it subsides and eventually you're on shore. And it's like, that's the scariest part is letting yourself feel really badly. But I I almost think in doing that, 
there's motion. There's in constant resistance. You're just going in circles, ending up this spit out the same place you started. But in really just being like acknowledging it, feeling it, talking to people about it, talking to a third party about it, whatever you need to do, just like don't pretend it's not there and channel it in ways that make you feel okay for five minutes, for five hours, whatever it needs to be. Like, I think what's so great about uh, creative projects in a difficult time is I like to sit down and think to myself, like, in this moment, I am fine. Everything is fine. Nothing is happening. Right now, I am fine. What am I going to do with this moment? Everything. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think sometimes so much of anxiety about what you've done or what what is to come it's just sapping real time of its joy and if you can kind of like have the discipline to treat your day like it's in isolation and like what you do today is all that matters and it's the smallest steps that yield the biggest results that you will just just die at the thought of thinking about what if you hadn't done that small step that ultimately led you somewhere else. And there's a million tiny steps that go nowhere, but one does, and you do not want to miss the one that does. And it's not up to you to decide the one that does. So you just have to do it all. And you just have to try anyway. And I say this because this is kind of the time when I started, I I was forced to explore other things. I really just kind of realized my heart wasn't in be there in five in the way that it once was. As I kind of talked about before, I saw, you know, part one of how I built this as a story of adrenaline. And I don't know that I explained what I how I felt what I thought part two was, but I almost liken it to a sailing analogy. And I'm not a sailor, but I took lessons at a summer camp. And um, I think it's like a really interesting art and science to it. But it, it, the adrenaline comes when, you know, you need to get offshore and the wind is at your back. And you're just moving so quickly and trying to figure it out. And you're going with the wind and everything's kind of working in your favor, despite not having the technical skill because you have the wind. And I kind of see the wind as like your motivation and the boat you're operating as your business. But the second half of this to me is like when you're sailing in irons against the wind and there's a map that everybody else uses that tells you where to go and what you should be doing. But the wind direction is what you want to be doing. And when you do what you think you should be doing and what other people are doing, you don't move forward. You can't move forward. Worse, you capsize. You always have to really pay attention to what you want and to what your gut's telling you and not expect that theoretically or on principle things will work out or will turn out an X, Y, Z outcome because somebody else is dead. Because... I have learned over the past several years that if if whatever I'm doing isn't blowing in the direction of my natural interest, desire, inclination, passion, motivation, energy, I can't do it. I can't. I'm not a person that can fake my interest or, or energy in something. It has to just be there. And if that's there, I'll figure anything out. I'll become an expert on any topic. I will become a seasoned sea captain in a matter of time because it's it's what I want to be doing and it matters to me and it's leading me somewhere that I ultimately want to be going. 
but but doing all that work and kicking up your heels and and living a stressful existence to get somewhere you're not even sure if you want to go is a very thankless difficult path filled with a lot of uh, self-imposed resistance. And I don't think I really realized that is what I had been doing. And I excuse the metaphors. I just like, this is how I think. (laughs) I don't know how to explain it otherwise. But I I think too, what I had mentioned earlier, my last contractor leaving that I really was so helpful to me, kind of my co-captain, that was a big, that was a big turning point when I just started to feel very lost at sea and on my own. I knew that I think Marina was kind of like the last thread keeping me hanging on because she knew all about it. She had been there since the beginning. I knew she believed in me and she always told me I would do great things, whatever it was, and was in, always helped me like brainstorm. And but I couldn't like employ her full time, nor did I want her to work for me full time. I want her to get great, important corporate life experience and to be able to be selective down the line from a diverse array of experiences. She's seen what a choppy startup looks like, and now she can see what a corporation looks like. And I hope, I really hope we'll cross paths down the line. I hope I work for her someday. At that point, knowing she was leaving, having taken six months just looking for a place to live, planning my wedding and like kind of involved with the business, because I think I was just like mentally checked out and I'm so mad at myself for checking out of the business. I'm also mad that Be There in Five doesn't really need me. I'm mad that it's not really growing. I'm feeling just like so it's like such a bad business owner. Like how did I let myself disengage? How did I let myself make bad decisions, pay so much in rent, pay? uh, How did I let myself get to a place where I both wanted so much more, but took every action to make it so much less. And I couldn't reconcile those two for the longest time until I really had to sit with myself. And I really had to, um, I, I just, as weird as it sounds, you can, I can put off having a tough conversation with myself for like months, years. Denial is real. It's, it's, it's a real thing. And like, I think I just never really admitted or said out loud that I don't want to be a rug empire. I don't want to make doormats for a living. I want that to be part of it, but I don't want it to be all of it. I, at this time, like, so now we're in summer of 2017, last year. Greg was like, you really need to be networking. Like, I think a big part of your problem is you've just been like heads down and in the work. And most people in your position, most business owners are out there wheeling and dealing and meeting people and, you know, getting other opportunities and using their business expertise elsewhere. And I, I just, I I don't know. I wasn't, it's like at that point it was almost too gone because I wasn't even proud of myself. It was impossible for me to talk about myself. And I, a lot of people don't believe this when I say it, but I really am an introvert. I really, it takes a lot of energy for me to like put myself out there and to talk to a group of strangers and I get really nervous. And when I would, do this sort of networking at the beginning because that's what I thought I should be doing is going to like Chicago's, you know, startup be entrepreneurial things. And I, I think last episode I talked about how frustrated I would get because people would be like pre-revenue or they tell me about some round of funding and they only had a slide deck and they hadn't done any work and all they did was schmooze. And I found it to be so, such a turnoff. I was leaving those events like proud of myself, like the heads down work is what made me successful. Like I knew nobody and did it anyway. But then at this point, having felt like 
just so behind and like I could have done so much more. And I wasn't like proud of the fact that I was my heart wasn't as in it anymore. And I would go to functions and be like, I'd leave feeling so small because the only thing I had to offer people was like, well, let me know if you, I, 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 I can make you a mat sometime. Like, what was I going to say? Like, let me know about your flooring needs. I, I just felt like I was over associated with the mats. And I had a very specific event that I went to that I was invited to with a bunch of people I was really excited to meet and a person I was excited to meet. And I know very well that with networking, like I really wanted to grab coffee or something sometime, you need to have something to offer first. You need to, it has to be a reciprocal relationship. You can't just take, especially with busy people. And I just kind of like froze and I was like, oh yeah, I'm an entrepreneur too. Like if, if you ever need to get coffee, I, uh, I'd love to help with, and like, I just had, I had nothing to say. I had nothing to say, but like, if you need me to make you a doormat, I'm like, who the hell cares? Like she didn't need one. I, like, I just was like, I need, I need something to offer. Like I need, I need people to follow me and not the doormats. Like I need to overhaul be there in five with who I am, the values I have and the ideas I have and the doormats and rugs are one of them and they'll always be important. And I will always uphold and maintain the Etsy side of my business because I love that part. I love the customer interaction. I love using my hands. I love sitting down to paint someone a rug for their wedding. Like that is my Zen happy place time. And I, I just like, I, I can't go to another one of these things and not feel like the strong and smart and accomplished person that I know that I am, that I just don't feel like right now. And I need to do more soul searching and more activities and align my business in a way that will make me be able to show my talents, to execute more of my expertise and to feel like I've made all these decisions with good reason because I knew that where I was going was way better than what I could be planning. I knew that what I wanted was much bigger than anything these doormats would be getting me. I knew deep down that who I was, was that the person I had gotten reacquainted with at my wedding that was around the people I loved and have known me my whole life, that the the lighter, happier, creative version of myself that I know has brilliant ideas and be there in five was one of the ideas. And I was amazing at the beginning parts, all the stuff I'm good at, the launching, the branding, the figuring out the pieces of a puzzle, the customer service, the, the, the delegation, the streamlining of the operation piece, like what I had done in my corporate job. Like I loved, like I loved leading the way, the, the paving the path for this business and starting it. And I, I knew I was good at that part. I knew I could do that for anybody else's business, but I hated maintaining it. And that's when I realized I had this epiphany of like, an entrepreneur is different from a small business owner. A small business owner is dedicated to the content of what they're doing. An entrepreneur is dedicated to their ideas, is dedicated to the continuous innovation, ideation, launching, setting all of the pieces in place, setting up a business for success and walking away. And I think that until I thought this through, I just had felt like I was a crappy entrepreneur and I had no business doing any of this. But in taking a step back and being like, what, what makes me valuable? 
I realized all the things I loved and was good at were the same. All the things I hated and were bad at was bad at were the same. And the main difference was I was kind of fitting a square peg in a round hole. I'm I'm way more of a creative, way more of an ideas guy, way more of uh, needing the adrenaline at the start of something in order to really tap into the best side of myself in order to continue to be creative. And um, in I think I was able to be so happy for so long in it because I really didn't have the time or choice or space, but not to delegate earlier. But in those pa- that past year or two, when I brought it all back in, when I got more controlling, when I had the space and I had a little bit more time, I just, I really, I've sabotaged the whole thing. And th- I guess the for me, the mental delineation of that, the first two years and the second two years being totally different jobs and it being okay that I was only good at one of them, that gave me the peace I needed to move forward. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but like I I really have to sit down and write out how I feel and write out the reality of the situation because I'm a big believer and you can't believe the fiction you write in your head. Like y- you can't get so far down the hole that you don't remember what's real and what's not real. And I knew I was capable of doing something impossible. Because if you had told me four years ago that I would have done all of this and gone through all of this, I would have told you it was impossible. So I kind of start to feel okay with making the rug business what I want it to be and what makes me happy and what will give me the spending money and the income to live while I figure out my next steps. It took me like a year to get there. And I know that's so weird. It seems so simple, but like it took me a long time to just be okay with the fact that I had scaled it down and I had consciously scaled it down. And Marina leaving too, which forced me to get back into the painting, I realized that a lot of that was very therapeutic for me. And I, and I did like some of the production again. And that was kind of what, what back to basics, why I started in the first place. So I, a couple things happen. Um, I, <clears throat> I bring up some like ideas I have to Greg and to my parents, like very timidly and scared being like, what if I, what if I like actually took writing seriously? What if I, uh, you know, took being more of like a thought leader and a voice in this, uh, community seriously? Like what if, and I just kind of like, I don't know, put out feelers thinking that people would be like, oh my gosh, why are you like giving up on be there in five? I thought you were happy. Like, isn't that your dream? Aren't you doing the dream? Like, I don't know. I, I just, I guess it was like in my head and I hadn't really released it. And of, co- and of course, like everybody that mattered to me was like, yeah, like do whatever you want. Try it. Why the hell not? But meanwhile, I'm just like not really in this place where I, I feel very confident about anything. And it's like, I, I'm putting this out there while also not having anything tangible. I didn't know what it looked like or what I really wanted to do. I was just like, hey, I'm thinking about doing something completely different that doesn't leverage anything I already have. What do you think? And it's like, it's 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 hard to get good constructive feedback and it's hard to like get started when you don't even know how to explain it to other people. And I think sometimes that can be de-energizing. And fortunately with my parents and my husband, like if I, if it's like creative or it's rooted in words, I think they know that that's my wheelhouse. And even though I didn't have a blueprint, that I, that it w- it would be fine. And so I kind of hint at like taking a step back and that I had no idea what I was doing, but I needed to do something else. And I was going to try a bunch of stuff and I probably was going to make 
no money and it would probably be really confusing to objectively witness, but like I swore it would get somewhere. I just was at my breaking point. And, you know, the, all, all the great things I've done in life have just come from like wild experimentation, from like being a student of the world and of culture and trying things and knowing most of the time they're never going to turn into anything. But like, at least you tried and at least you used your brain in a different way that could ultimately lead you somewhere better. I, every time I have an idea, it comes to me in like a download. I don't work over things, at things over time. I give myself as many opportunities as possible to have these downloads. And when they come, I ride them out and I don't let anything stop me. And when I say opportunities for them to come to me, I know that sounds like really out there. Like, oh, that's that's really helpful advice. Just like wait till something comes to you. What I mean is I don't think enough people sit down with a pen, not a computer, a pen, or even sit down at, at their computer sometimes with a blank document and like just start. I, I don't think enough people let themselves just like brainstorm, draw it out, map it out, try it out, see what it looks like, like make it tangible in some way, shape or form. And nine times out of 10, you're going to have an unproductive few hours where you get nowhere. But the people that are really meant to do something like this will keep going and keep trying because you know that the for the, that one out of 10 times where you have like a really great moment of creative flow that even if your audience is zero and even if you're going nowhere, it's worth it to you because it's so incredibly fulfilling. And that's when you do your best work. So if you're not a person that thinks you get downloads and you want to be creative, you just need to give yourself as many opportunities as you can to think creatively, whether it's taking yourself on dates, go to the park, walk around a pond, have a glass of wine by yourself at a restaurant and bring a journal listen to podcasts like I, these I would just like drown myself in content listening to how other people talked and what they cared about and what they thought like I, I spent all these days alone just like listening and, and learning from so many podcasts and books and they would give me ideas and I just there's no one way or tactic I can tell you to like have a stroke of genius or to feel like you've really thought something thought, thought of something amazing but I can I can tell you that you probably have you just haven't really taken it seriously or sat down to write it. Like, I think, you know, sometimes you're in the shower or you're falling asleep or you're doing something mundane and random. And you just have this like set of really interesting and cohesive and lucid thoughts. But then like they're very easily forgotten about if you don't tend to them. And I think as long as you can just immerse yourself in the things you love and your family and friends and culture. And like, that's why I say, like, screw anybody who hates TV. You, you can call it a waste of time and you can tell me that it's rotting my brain. But some of my best ideas, some of some of my worldviews have changed. Some of like watching characters evolve through television, watching great writers perform their craft on scripted shows, watching reality characters destroy their own lives, having hard days pass so much more easily because I was in somebody else's world. Like I love TV and podcasts and audiobooks. And for me, this has always made me so much more dynamic and creative. And the more I'm immersed in these different worlds, these niche worlds or the pop culture world, like that's kind of when I feel alive and like I have my best ideas. And like even when I'm not deliberately trying, they'll all kind of merge and at some point. And then I have like a great idea come to me. And I know that's probably not helpful, but that's how I feel. I think the combination of taking some time away from thinking about myself, having the dog, 
really sitting down and thinking about what I like and what I want and going easier on myself about being a great entrepreneur, but not a great business owner. I just like spent way more time like being okay with the fact that my business was back to being smaller again, that I was working by myself again. And I just like spent a ton of time brainstorming ideas, writing down different ideas. I, I just, anything and everything. I was buying domains. I just was, I was experimenting with new products. I was, I made my wedding website into a blog. I got more involved with volunteering. I added a bunch of artwork to my shop. I I, I honestly had like 12,000 jobs in late 2017, early 2018. And that is why I always refer to myself as Craig Conover from Southern Charm on here, because truly Greg would come home and I would have done something different that day that I swore was going to be my next big thing. And, you know, none of them were. Um, But like I said earlier, it just takes one thing. And based on probability alone, you've got to try a lot. And a lot's not going to work out. And as much as you can prevent yourself from being a feeling like a victim or from feeling like there's some sort of pattern, there's not really. I think for anybody, for the world, mediocrity is the rule. Greatness is the exception. And if you want your if you want to be part of the exception, you have to have the awareness that a lot of what you do is going to be mediocre. And that's fine. And it doesn't mean it's a waste of time. A lot of it's probably even going to be bad. But people get frustrated when they think everything they touch is gold and then get frustrated when other people don't get it or aren't receiving it. And then they get de-energized and they're like, well, I'm not even going to try. Nobody understands how great this is, how wonderful I am. I I think a lot of entrepreneurs have like an ego issue in that sense. I I honestly think I own about 45 domains. One of them is buffalochickenwrap.com. I have no plans for that domain other than like there's just going to be somebody somewhere who desperately needs that domain and needs to buy it from me, right? I I don't know. I just love BCWs. Who doesn't? If you need to understand the perfect buffalo chicken wrap, I do believe I go through it in great detail in episode 20. I think I just was able to let myself have some freedom to forgive myself to use Be There in Five as a way to live while I explored other things. And I just made this decision that in this year, uh, with, you know, Greg's consent, I <laughs> I was going to see what happened when I let things land where they will instead of where I will it. And the only way you can do that is by trying a crap ton of stuff and looking incredibly stupid for most of them, but sometimes they stick. But the one thing I realized is that the only way I was going to be able to create a better future and career for myself is that I was going to have to sell myself. I was going to have to promote myself. I needed to get out of bed. I needed to shower. I needed to get in front of my phone and embarrassingly talk to myself and to the Instagram universe and leverage this incredible tool and following I had that I wasn't using that I felt so de-energized by. But I didn't want to use it to to babble about like small business tips. I didn't want to show off my tablescapes or my flowers or my outfits or use it for anything that was like a small part of me. I love all those things. I follow all those things, but those aren't that those aren't my like unique points of interest or where I think I have unique value. At the end of the day, the only thing that makes you you is the unique set of things that make up you. 
And I think where people go wrong is in trying to emulate the successful bloggers, influencers, etc. It doesn't really work because that's not actually how you live. That's probably actually how Julia Engel lives. But like, even if I am showing a little bit of uh, interior and clothes and the dog and this and that, like, it's not like anybody else's because it's actually how I live. And nobody else has that combination of things. So I, I really think there's room for everybody if everybody's being authentic. And I feel like everybody's advice is like, you need to produce a co- content that's authentic to you and da, da, da. And like, I, I know you all know that. But I guess what I mean is I wanted to actually talk about what came to my mind that day that wasn't like rehearsed or a bit. And what what kept coming to my mind is just all this pop culture knowledge I had that none of my friends really care about. The only people that I really talked about are like my sister and my dad. We have a text about all the shows we watch. And um, I just it's like this weird database I had that I, I never really like acknowledged that I didn't use a ton. So I just start talking on Instagram about pop culture, about nonsense talking about the 90s and talking about what was going on in the world and Taylor Swift and analyzing Daily Mail and doing all this stuff that literally my friends and family were like, are you okay? Like, what are you doing? Like, I, I wasn't a social media star. I was nobody. I was a person that was just looking for an outlet who was having a hard time who realized that by connecting through Instagram, by, by showing more of myself to my existing following and trying to leverage that, they were associating Be There in Five with me and not the mats. And that's what I wanted. I remember from day one when I started posting cute tugboat photos and people would DM me. I had I, never had people DMing me before. I was kind of like, whoa, these people are actually following, actually care, like my dog. They're real people. I'd stalk their profiles and kind of start this ongoing dialogue that made me connect back to be there in Fives Following in a way that I, I just never had. Because they previously, they had probably followed me because one of my Matt phrases were, were funny. But th- like, I assumed if I started talking on my stories, if I started putting more of myself out there, they just unfollow because I was effectively a stranger that hadn't done anything interesting. But I just was like, I just was having this like period of time where I was like, what do I like? I love to write. I love pop culture. I love TV. I love everything that anybody would probably consider is unimportant. But I think it's an interesting contribution to our culture and our zeitgeist. And I'm not ashamed to talk about it because I think I'm smart and I think I'm successful. And I want to be a smart and successful person that can talk about really stupid stuff. And it'd be okay because <laughs> we're not all one thing. I, I, I can be it all because I'm going to be it all. And I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to just see what happens. And what happened is I talked about stuff I liked. I talked about business. I just tried to get on every day and comment on something in some way from a perspective I wasn't seeing to just let people in a little bit more. And like slowly but surely, I got measurably happier. And I know that sounds insane because it's like, how narcissistic is it that you put yourself on Instagram and you feel better? But like, I can't even tell you how low I felt and how small I felt and how I had just ruined everything for myself. But connected with this small part of me that like knew better and tried it anyway and connected with you guys. And even though it made no sense that a doormat maker was like talking about this stuff I like started making friends and had people coming back every day and people like I wouldn't post and people be like, I was worried about you. Um, And like this sounds so I know this sounds so stupid, but like it made me feel like me again because I, I had been alone working for so long and I 
my days were just, there was joy injected to my day because I was, I felt like I had a purpose reading all the crap I was reading anyway. So I didn't feel guilty about it. And then I would kind of report on it or talk about it. And then people would say it was the highlight of their day. And it's not, and like I said, it's not in an official capacity. I'm not a reporter. I'm not a, anything. I, I'm making it sound like I have hundreds of thousands of followers. Th- this epiphany and this amount of a confidence boost came from I think at the time I was maybe like 17 or 18 and now I'm like up to 21.5k which let me tell you it's very hard to build an organic following because I had a lot of bot followers from all these loop giveaways I had done back in the day and um I've had I I've, I've all of my followers came from a big account like Betches posting one of my mats like Teen Vogue posted one of my mats um I'd get tagged by magazines when they'd be in like Self or Glamour or Real Simple, Martha Stewart Living from like just doing random press over time. It was never like huge. It was very small and very incremental over time. A lot of people are like, how do you build your following? And like I did the loop giveaways to probably get like the first, I don't know, to get in between like five and 10,000. I think those are really important. And then after 15, I think it was uh, 10 to 15, it was all like chance. And that's when I was really disengaged. And then after 15, it was all a, a lot of my honest effort. Um, and I maybe did a few giveaways in there somewhere. It's hard to remember. And, and that's why it's very hard to answer the questions of like, how do you get press coverage? How do you build a following, et cetera? Because honestly, I think I inadvertently created a product that was very meme culture. That's very like, This doormat is all of us. Five things to get your best friend who's always running behind. Like, you know what I mean? The from the remind doormats pandering to forgetful people in a culture of where we're all like, this is so me. And having like the you're like really pretty be kind of a popular phrase. And uh, through just kind of the sheer randomness of of like a corporate person having a doormat company, um, I think that a lot came organically to me. I didn't actively pitch press a ton at the beginning, but I would get it. I I just like see on Google alerts or somebody would be like, hey, I saw your mat on a TV show. And I'd be like, huh? And I know that's like an annoying answer, but I think that goes to show the power of uh, a relatable product, a relevant product to what's going on in the realm in which you need free advertising, which is only social media. And that's what I meant earlier when I realized like my only choice is to promote myself. I don't have money for advertising. So I am my brand. And when it was just the mats, I honestly think it worked because if it's something that fits within that meme culture, like I said, that's inherently shareable, it's going to be shared. It needs a hook. It needs some to have some essence of the conversations people are having on social media to, to have movement without that hook, without that ability to have a clickbait headline, you can't just have, you can't just like make a vase or knit something. What's the story? Why is it interesting? Why should it affect somebody? Why should somebody click on it? What kind of lifestyle is relevant to the person that would buy this product? Like, why is it funny? Why is it unique? Why is somebody going to be like, oh my God, that's so my mom, that's so my sister, that's so my friend? Like, the, those are the, that's the logic you have to think through in terms of why something is or isn't getting shared. Because think of what makes you share something on social media. It's funny, it's quirky, it's unique. You think it's so somebody else. Or you like how it looks and think it's attractive and think it's worth telling other people about. Like, I, I just you, you just have to be almost tough on yourself and be like, 
would I share this? Would I follow me? Do I think I'm doing anything interesting, different, or value-added? And the answer for me up until like last September, October was no. I had no, I was so uninterested in myself and my online presence that I, nobody else should have been either. And it's a miracle I didn't lose all of those followers, but I didn't lose them because I wasn't doing anything. And you forget you follow people who aren't active. So it was maybe almost a blessing because if I had really like pushed the doormat thing or just the small business thing, I'm sure people would have been like, who are you? Bye. Um, so that was kind of a tangent, but a lot of people were like, can you talk about how to build your following? And my answer is you need at least one product that is, is, is catchy, is meme it, it might need to be cheesy. It might need to be something that feels a little bit off base. But if it's inherently shareable, people will share it and it will have traction. And the meme that Turn Off Your Straightener was made into in 2015, I still see floating around the Internet today. And I wish I didn't because it's a god awful photo. Um but just something to consider. And just to be clear, I have no clue how people get giant followings because mine isn't giant relative to the rest of the world. And I guess I tell you all of this to A, be like, you don't need six figures plus to feel like you're moving the needle. I have such valuable and meaningful interactions with people that uh, from Instagram, from the podcast, from our Facebook group, whatever, and I, I don't care how big the numbers are in volume because what matters is the impact on the individual level. And I think that <clears throat> on some of my harder days, I get so frustrated with social media and it's like impossible because you see everybody living this incredibly intensely curated life that you just know isn't real. You feel so annoyed that people go on The Bachelor and just like, kiss people in a hot tub, get kicked off the second night and then come home to a half million followers and like make more money, you know, doing two days of filming than I've made in four years of like, like pounding the pavement. In those social media, it's like I have this weird relationship with it where I is so necessary for my entire business because I never had to advertise because my stuff would always get shared. It's responsible for my career. But it also is responsible for me feeling really, really awful a lot of the time and feeling so behind. And a lot of the feelings I was feeling in, in my darker period were a result of just being like, God, everybody is lapping me. I, I, at one point, I was fighting off the copiers and staying at the top of my category left and right. But then I, I just got smothered. Everyone beat me at my own game. I was just looking at how everybody was leading these like sponsored, traveled, curated lives that I just didn't have, never would have. And I was just miserable sitting like in a dark room, you know, scrolling through Taylor Swift, Carly Kloss conspiracy theories to pass the time. I was like, I am such uh, I'm so worthless. But, you know, that's one of my most listened to podcasts of all time. And I didn't even have a podcast at the time. So nothing's a waste of time. <laughs> um, but I say that because of a big part of my relationship with social media my love and my disdain for it is why i ended up writing social media twinkle twinkle social media star but twinkle twinkle social media star was not the first book i pitched it was not the what i thought was the best idea i had it was actually not even supposed to be sent anywhere and i'm going to explain that i promise but where i am at this point in the story i wasn't really like actively writing a ton i was just kind of like trying to share more and engage more and slowly get people to follow me and not the mats and see what happened if I got my confidence up a little. See what happened if people liked my words and liked the way I talked and liked the things I was interested in. And, and ultimately, could that somehow be translated into something I actually wanted to do? 
I felt like I had no right and had no ability to, to do a, like a full random pivot without bringing people along for the ride. And what's so wild is like, I've never had better like engagement. And I feel like the content actually is like pretty good. And I do think about it and I do try to do something different. And like, I put a lot of effort into it and it really, it's not fruitful in terms of volume of followers. It's fruitful in terms of engagement. It's in fruitful in terms of relationship building and shifting perspectives of what my brand is. But just like, let me be so clear. It is so freaking hard to build an organic following. And there's a lot of shortcuts, but the shortcuts will bite you. And I just don't think you can do anything but be consistent and be different, but make it in your voice and your unique tone so it doesn't seem like it's other people's or it's too try hard and just hope for the best. And if you see it for what it is, and don't stress about what it needs to be or how many followers you should have or comparing yourself to somebody, then you'll have fun with it. Because on the days where I'm not like, Jesus, how do I do put this much effort into it? And I'm like losing followers. Um, that's when I'm like, what is all this for? But I'm like, no, that's not what it's for. What it's for is it, it's, it's an outlet for me creatively. It's an outlet for my interests that not a lot of people in my life have. So I can share them with strangers on the internet that have oddly become not strangers. And it, it's, it's, if, if you're not having fun, don't do it, I guess is my point, because you're probably not going to get the outcome you hope for very soon. It takes a long time. And a lot of the people with the big, big followings that weren't on a reality TV show have been doing it since like 2010. And a lot of people with big followings don't have good engagement. And I'd imagine that's a really stressful existence being like, yeah, I have all these followers do a brand deal with me, but my conversion's low, my likes are low, my comments are low. And then you feel guilty because they paid you a certain amount of money. So you're trying to like uh, scrounge some feigned interest in what you're doing. So you don't look bad with your partnerships. And I would rather feel like confident and people really like trusting me. You know what I mean? And I know this because I'll have really big accounts mention me in their story or in a post and I'll like eight followers will trickle through. And I'm like, dang, I thought that was going to be my big break. Good thing I didn't spend any money on it. But then there's people that follow me and I know personally or know through the Internet who have these incredibly engaged followings that trust them immensely and that provide good content and that are so themselves that I'll wake up and have like hundreds of followers. And I'm like, oh, did Skinny Meg tag me in a post? Did Caitlin James? Did Courtney Kerr? Or my good friend Jessica Sturdy is a successful OG blogger who like goes the coolest places and has the most amazing content and is such a departure from my garbage Instagram feed. But whenever people are like, oh, I found you through Jessica like, or Meg or Caitlin or Courtney, I, I, it sounds like I'm singing Mambo number five. Um, I think I, I think you're so funny or I like what you're doing. I'm like, oh, no, that is so, it's cool that like, the people that you like and respect, then their dedicated following kind of also really gets you by default when they come over. And it's like so wild how I think sometimes that the measure of influence is sure what these people do in terms of their own careers and their own, you know, sponsorships and deals. But I think that people with true influence don't realize they can really help and change lives of people with smaller followings with that are lesser known, but still like try to produce quality. And like, that's something I want to always try to remember is like, should I ever get to a point where I can actually like help anybody out? 
to make sure to acknowledge them, to call them out, whether my friends or people I don't know at all, because you can make the best thing in the world or be doing the funniest thing in the world, but it doesn't matter if nobody can find you. And I think the most powerful thing people can do with that kind of social media presence is, is help other people find people that you really believe in and that you think do a good job. And I'm so grateful to people that uh, are willing to share the what they worked so hard to build to share a part of it with me. So I guess my point is there's no like secret sauce. Um, I wish there was to arrest me. Some days I'm like, this is too much work. I'm not, I'm not making enough money off this. But um, what's so crazy about something people can trivialize as much as social media and like I'm such a, I'm like a fan, a critic, a participant. Like I have so many complicated thoughts about my relationship with social media. I think we all do. But it was a thing that helped me connect to people that made me feel like myself again, that made me just be more creative and made me feel like if I did something else, no matter it's of its traditional relevance, just maybe people would follow me. Maybe I could be the common thread of all these disjointed things I want and not worry so much about them making sense. And at this time, I, this was in last November, okay? Basically six months of not making any money, trying a lot of stuff, still just kind of maintaining the business to the best of my ability. And I try to make a concerted effort to to revisit the writing piece, both just writing for the sake of writing stream of consciousness, morning pages type stuff where you just kind of see what comes out of you. And also revisiting my poems that I just so trivialized because I'm not a professional, but also by Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours theory, I was like beyond an expert because I've written so many throughout life. Like if you know me personally, like for some odd reason my whole life like I've just had this weird kind of skill to like write and rhyme and structure sentences or toasts or speeches or things quickly and quippily and um but it's never really like had any use like viable commercial use any I don't know it just like beyond you know doing it at my wedding and on college essays and like in in speeches and stuff and like I don't rap they're always poems um I don't know. It's just like, oh, useless skill. But I was kind of like, I'm, I'm so over feeling useless. Like, what, what is this? What can I do with this? And I mean, my idols growing up, like, I, I mean, most people probably like idolized athletes, actors, musicians. I, I idolized Shel Silverstein, like number one fan. <laughs> my idol as an adult is just strictly because of is talent and trade is Lin-Manuel Miranda. I'm obsessed with the way he assembles language in a cadence that I, I can't even believe comes out of somebody's brain. I, I, I just, th that's the type of stuff I like fangirl over because it's kind of how my mind thinks in a much more amateur, uh, less refined way. And I, when I was a kid, I would, I remember like being in third grade and leaving my trailer because it was a public school and we had overflow and you know how that goes. And I like see the blacktop and I see my kids and I see everybody else playing on the playground and me like r running home because I lived near my elementary school and I like, didn't want to play outside. I didn't want to play with friends or on the playground. I had to get home 
because I had written a poem about the moon and my parents had to hear it. And they would always just marvel at these poems I wrote. I don't know. I guess I don't even know how to really explain why one moment I was like embarrassed and was like, anybody can use rhymedstone.com. I'm not special. And then the next moment I was like, I need to take this seriously. This is something that I, I, I'm good at and I deserve to have a, a place in this world as this. I guess just like over time, I just felt a little bit more confident. And, and at this point, I had like a, a solid, you know, four, six months of really taking some time to figure out what I wanted to be doing. And I just kind of kept coming back to like, God, I, I really wish I could write even though I like wasn't sure exactly what I do yet. In about November of last year, I just was like in the middle of this time where I just was in complete limbo suspension, just getting up and convincing myself that something was happening every day, despite nothing actually happening. I felt some weird moment of clarity where I had spent all this time just kind of tinkering with like different ways to do new things, different things, new categories, start from scratch, while completely ignoring that I didn't need to be reinventing the wheel. I needed to focus on the gifts I already had and not focus on what I had not being enough and not confuse a, a lack of professional experience with real life experience, with true expertise. I, I, I needed to stop thinking that I needed an institution, a degree, some third party pedigree or acknowledgement to tell me I was good at something when I already knew I was good at it. I, I really got to a place where I snapped out of it and was like, the only way I'm ever going to see the other side is if I get back to basics and do what I really want in my heart of hearts. And that is to be an author. That's always been my dream. I'm like, why the hell not? I was so tired, like physically tired of arguing for my own limitations and using my literary skills to essentially have my anxiety and my neuroses ghostwrite this projected future that just wasn't a reality that didn't have to be a reality. Like, I, I think sometimes you just have a moment where you're like, holy crap, this is all my choice. I am not a victim of some force greater than me forcing me to go one direction or the other. Nobody is telling me that I can or can't do something. You're inferring that, you're assuming that. But you have no right to claim any of it as fact, to wave your white flag, to consider yourself defeated until you try it. And I'm a person that, very rarely feels this lucid on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm filled with doubt constantly. But I, I really think sometimes when you're, when you're running on empty, when there's nothing left in you, is when you have the capacity to dream. Because, again, you have nothing to lose. And so I remember sitting there in November and just being like, Maybe this isn't all for nothing. Maybe all of these, this like weird draw I have to like talk about pop culture and influencers and engage with my audience and never talk about my business. And even though it makes me no money, for some reason I'm drawn to it. And for some reason I kept on doing it. And 
I can't help but believe it, it has to leave me, lead me somewhere. I, I can't help but believe that just maybe if I did it once, I, when I surprised myself with the doormats. I surprised myself every step of the way by having outcomes that were better than what I could imagine because my own experience wasn't able to do justice to my potential back then and hopefully now. And even though I'm older and the risks are higher and I've had a few misses in the past couple of years and I desperately need income. If I don't do it now, I'll never do it. I'm going to write my way out. And the next part is, is to be continued that I will share the week of November 6th when Twinkle Twinkle Social Media Star a nursery rhyme for the digital age by one Catherine Kennedy from Short Bump, Virginia comes out wherever books are sold. I look forward to talking you through the, the evolution of how that came to be. It's not as straightforward as you might think, <laughs> as actually you probably do think, four hours later. Um, and I want to share a lot about it that, you know, would be a spoiler if I talked through now. And frankly, I need to get back to pop culture for a minute anyway, because I think I'm, uh, I, I, I'm a little over talking about myself. <laughs> this has been a lot for me to reprocess. And, uh, you know, me and Tugboat are having, a, are having an emotional time. Um, but anyway, I, I'm, I'm going to leave you with this song that's incredibly important to me, which you'll realize based on what I just said. Uh, I listened to it a lot this past year. No surprise, it is from the Hamilton mixtape. And I want you to listen closely to Lin-Manuel Miranda's part. And really all of it, because I've been referencing it throughout this podcast, because I I truly love this song. It was made by different rappers. The main one in the song is Nas, about how they used words, picked up a pen, about how they they wrote songs to get themselves out of the projects and out of a difficult situation. While my issues have virtually no comparison to any difficulty in the grand scheme of life or the world. Just as they say in the song, I certainly do have a hurricane in my brain. Uh, when he starts to rap the part that starts with oversensitive, defenseless, I made sense of it by penciling the lengths of which I go to learn my strengths and knock them senseless. These sentences are endless. So what if they leave me friendless? And then the next part is my favorite. And I'm sorry to my mom for it, it does use profanity, but it's powerful. And I'll just let you listen to the song. But I'll say that I think that all of the, the, the turmoil and the uncertainty we put ourselves through, all the noise we get in our heads from other people, from feeling inadequate or feeling stupid or feeling like people think we have no chill. I, I think a lot of us are very, I know I, I can speak to myself. I, I am incredibly intense. And I think sometimes... It's just like, get a normal job, relax. Why are you putting yourself through all of this? But there, there was a time where I would have seen it as stubborn. But now I'm just like, yeah, I'm relentless. I wouldn't put myself through this if I didn't think I could do more. And until I find that thing, I'm going to chase it.
And I know it's not going to be easy, but I am grateful that you guys are along for the ride. And I still don't know how it's going to do, how it's going to pan out. And I guess we'll figure out soon. And I'll tell you more about everything in the the next podcast. But I guess for today, uh, above all else, I am proud of the relentlessness I've found in terms of knowing what I wanted from a very young age. And no matter how hard I try to resist it, I always come back to it. And what's so special to me is that in, in channeling the girl with the kids on the blacktop running home, pen in hand to read her parents a poem about the moon. I'm proud of, in the worst of times, placing all my bets back on that same girl who so purely loved this one thing, putting a pen back in my hand. And because the moon was already covered in 1997, this time I wrote about the stars. The social media stars, of course. And until next time, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. When the world turned its back on me, I was up against the wall. I had no foundation, no friends or no family to catch my fall. Running on empty, it was nothing left in me. Dubbing these rhymes in my dual cassette deck Running out of time like I'm Jonathan Lawson's rent check My mind is where the wild things are, Maurice Sendak In withdrawal, I want it all, please give me that pen back Y'all, I caught my first beating from the other kids when I was caught reading Oh, you think you smart, but start bleeding The pops tried in vain to get me to fight back Sister tapped my brain, said, Psh, you'll get him right back Oversensitive, defenseless, I made sense of it My pencil in the lengths to which I'd go to learn my strengths And knock him senseless, these sentences are endless So what if they leave me friendless? Damn, you got no chill Fucking right, I'm relentless I know Abuela's never really gonna win the lottery So it's up to me to draw blood with this pen hidden artery This Puerto Rican's brains are leaking through the speakers And if he can be the shining beacon This side of the GWB and shine a light when it's gray out I wrote my way out Oh, I was born in the eye of the storm No loving arms to keep me warm This hurricane in my brain is the burden I bear I can do without, I'm here, cause I wrote my way. I picked up the pen.